I'm starting. Now what we want to do is talk about uh, Josiah's Jerusalem, what I, what I term Josiah's Jerusalem. Um, and this is the uh, uh, 7th century Jerusalem. We've already talked about uh, Hezekiah and how they survived Sennacherib's invasion. Now what we want to do, th then there was in between this king Manasseh, Manasseh um, who basically undid all the religious reforms of Hezekiah. Right? So he, it was Hezekiah's son. He was kind of co, we, we think he was kind of co-regent, co-king um, uh, with his father for a while. We have this interesting text where Hezekiah is about to die, but then he prays and God answers his prayer and gives him a few more years. Um, so we think maybe during that time Manasseh was, was being groomed or was co- Anyways, Manasseh's son takes over and undoes all the religious reforms, okay, which the Bible is going to think is really good or really bad. Bad, right? So Manasseh, Manasseh is um, considered a bad king. And so bad things start to happen, right? The Bible, uh, the Hebrew Bible, uh, understands this as what, what many scholars call Deuteronomistic theology. That is, it's a theology based upon the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, when you do good things, God blesses you. And when you do bad things, God curses you. It's like a vending machine, okay? So if you do good deed, if you do mitzvah, you know, B1, right, you get know, a Twinkie, right? And you eat the Twinkie and you're happy because you, get, you did good deed and you always are going to get that, right? But if you do evil deed D7, right, you get pork rinds, right, which, is, which are nasty, right? No one eats those things, right? And so, the, and, and, and the, the other thing is, the, the reverse is true. In Deuteronomistic theology, the reverse is true. If something good is happening to you, if you're being blessed and you have lots of kids and they're all healthy and you're healthy and you have lots of money, you must be doing something right, right? Because the reverse is also true. So if a Twinkie fall out, it, you had to have pushed the right combination, right? But likewise, if bad things were happening to you, if you were sick, or if you were poor, or you know, just terrible things were happening to you, you must be doing something wrong. That's the way the theology works. It's a, it's a cut and dry, which is why we have the book of Job. The book of Job in the Hebrew Bible has nothing to do with Jerusalem, but it challenges this notion. Bad things can happen to really good people, really righteous people. It just happens, right? So Job challenges that. But for the most part, we're dealing with Deuteronomistic theology, Right? Where if bad things are happening, you must be doing something wrong. Yeah? Correct. Right. Good question. Um, the question is, does the Bible ever try to explain why he's got a, a relatively long reign? Yeah. The Bible works around this, right? And we, ha we come into the opposite problem with Josiah, who's this good king who does, he's good, why? Not because he presides over a great economy. He's good because he, brings about, because he brings about religious reform. Remember, everything in the Hebrew Bible is not about how good you were as a king for the prosperity of your nation. It's how well you uh, uh, followed the laws of the Bible, right? the laws of the faith. Right? Josiah gets killed right, in battle. And the good, righteous king is not supposed to get killed in battle, but he does, and they have to explain that. In, in the same way, they kind of beat around that idea. Well, they kind of ignore the fact that he had a lot of years, decades of prosperity. The thing that he did wrong, is he, it wrong was he went back to the, the worship pre-Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was good, right? Just like his father David, his great-great-great-grandfather David. And so they just kind of work around it. And you get, in the editing process, you get other things. And because he did this, and because he did this. Under Josiah, 
we're going to see the decline of the Assyrian Empire. Um, and then he's going to preside over the finding, the finding of the book and religious reforms. And we'll talk about this in just a second. And then he's going to die in a battle with Pharaoh Necho at Megiddo. Again, all the great battles take place at Megiddo, right? So Megiddo is where all the battles take place. But he dies, and then the Bible has to do the opposite, try to explain why he died when he was doing all these good things. And then, of course, the decline of Assyria means the Babylonians rise to power, the Babylonians come in, and spoiler alert, wipe out Jerusalem and exile all the, all the nobles, right? And that's going to take place in 586 BCE. So this is just where we're headed in this lecture. Um, I showed you what Jerusalem was like probably during David or the city of David and then how it grew during the 8th century. So on the eve of Sennacherib's invasion, right, Samaria had already been destroyed. Jerusalem had already expanded to the western hill. Population was, was, has increased tremendously. And then after they survived, people are even going there more. Wow, this place can stand up to Assyria. And so you start to get these additional suburbs, right, growing around. So Jerusalem's continuing to grow. You see some prosperity. The problem is that anytime you throw together a bunch of people, right, that didn't used to always live together, and especially when you start invoking religion into politics, you're going to distress people. I'll just put it that way, right? Some people like religion and politics and want there to be religion and politics, and some people don't like that, especially the people who don't follow the religion that's in power at, time, at the time. Okay? So you've got all these different people that used to be from the north that are now in Jerusalem. You've got an urban setting. People from the country are now living in the city, right? Country mouse, city mouse. And all this is going on, the political unrest under Manasseh, right? So this is, you can go read about it, 2 Kings 21. You have an assassination, which leads to a very young boy king taking the throne. Okay? He's just a kid. So uh, at eight years old, he becomes king. Eight. So you had an eight-year-old king, which means what? I don't know many eight-year-olds that can run a country, which means who's probably running the country? The advisors, his, his royal advisors, right? And what do you need to do if you don't have a super charismatic, very powerful, very intimidating leader at the helm? What are some of the things that you can do if, you're, if your company or your religion or isn't based upon a very charismatic leader? Right? You have to find other ways to impose authority. So a lot of scholars think that's why it is at this time, under the reign of this little boy king, Josiah, that we find the discovery, we, we read about the discovery, and I put that in quotes, of what, what many people assume to be the law that comes to be the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? Let me say that again. If you've got a king who's not a charismatic, powerful leader, you need to find some other way to build credibility and authority. We've already got writing for 100 years, and writing's really booming within the centralized authority of, of, the, of the monarchy. So one of the things that you can do is begin to really precipitate or, or, or accelerate that transition to the rule under a text. Okay, so we will read here. Uh, well, let's just... Let's just um, Let's just read it. Forget this for now, because um, it's what I'm about to say. Basically, um, you're going to discover the book of the law or the book of the covenant or what some people think is the Torah, right? Or what comes to be the Torah. 
It's based upon this Deuteronomistic reform. Again, the name takes after the book of Deuteronomy, which basically says, if you do what God commands you in this book, you will be blessed. And if you don't, you will be cursed, right? And again, you're going to see that Josiah is going to bring about the same religious reforms that Hezekiah did, albeit, I will say, for a different reason. A little bit different reason. Okay? But we want to we focus upon Josiah's religious, it's a very conservative, very orthodox uh, uh, religious reform, and it's based upon not his own decrees, but a book. So when you go to 2 Kings 22, right, we see Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem, etc., etc., etc. You get this thing. So then the, the high priest Hilkiah said to this cri- uh, scribe Shaphan, right, I have found a scroll of the teaching in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, who read it, right? The scribe Shaphan then went to the king and reported to the king, your servants have melted down the silver that was deposited in the house. They delivered it to the overseers of the work who were in charge of the house of the Lord. Then the scribe Shaphan also told the king, the high priest Hilkiah has given me a scroll. So the way that we have the story recorded in 2 Kings 22 is under Manasseh, they had completely abandoned worship, uh, they abandoned the upkeep of the temple, uh, uh, completely uh, undid the, the religious reforms of Hezekiah, and now they're back to worshiping all these pagan gods, and the, the temple just fell into neglect. So when Josiah came to, to order, they went and cleaned out the temple, and lo and behold, they discovered a scroll the scroll of the teaching, right? And this scroll is going to come to be known as the law, right? And the tradition is that this was the law that was first given from Moses, right? The Ten Commandments type thing, but the law that we read about where? In other books, right? And then, it, then of course, the book of Deuteronomy records all this law. So the idea, and this is scholars, different depending on who you talk to, are split on this, Either Josiah genuinely did, the advisors to Josiah actually were cleaning out the temple and discovered a copy of the book of what would later become Deuteronomy or the Torah or some kind of book with all these laws in it that came to be the Hebrew Bible. And they discovered it and they went, wow, we fell away from the religion. Or what we're seeing uh, under Josiah is because you've got a boy king, because there's this vacuum in authority, you need to establish authority. So we might as well establish it on a religious reform. And so they found a book with all these laws in it, and they said, look, this is the law, Moses, this is Dave, you know, Dave, all these laws that we, and this law becomes the rule of the land. Okay? It's one of those two. Something, or maybe something in between, but one of those two. Either they found a scroll that already was written, or they produced a scroll and then recorded it as a story that they found it. And you get to decide what you believe on that. Now, Remember Hezekiah? Remember when we read in 2 Kings 18, he abolished the shrines and the pillars and the sacred post, the bronze serpent? Remember these religious reforms? Okay. Now we're going to read about similar reforms under Josiah. Right? One of the things you need to do is stop worshiping all these other gods. Now keep in mind, the shrines, the pillars, the sacred post, the Nehushtan, these were all shrines to the Hebrew god. Not all of them. But the Nehushtan was, you know, Moses made it, right? And Jacob set up his, his uh, share of matzibot, right? 
Um, they had all these different things, which were ways of, of worshiping Yahweh. They also had pillars to other gods, right? But a lot of these um, shrines were to, to what they believed to be the one true God. And Hezekiah knocked them down because he wanted centralization. Yes, they, they might be shrines to the one true God, but we're going to knock them down because we only want to worship the one true God here in Jerusalem, in the temple. Now, let's look at Josiah's reforms. This is 2 Kings 23. So maybe you want to write on the compare, uh, comparing the reforms of Josiah and Hezekiah. Right? So what did he do? The king ordered the high priest Hilkiah, the priest of the second rank, all the guards of the threshold to bring, the temple, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the objects made for Baal and Asherah. Apparently, there were idols to foreign gods in the temple to the Hebrew god. Right? He burned them. He suppressed the idolatrous priest. Apparently, there were priests in ancient Israel who were worshiping other gods. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. So there's this, it's like a totem pole, not exactly, but it's basically a, a, a tree or a wood, uh, a pole that was to um, worship this other god. Remember at Kuntilat Ajrud, we have an inscription that reads very explicitly, may you be blessed by Yahweh and his Asherah. We know that they were worshiping extra biblical evidence, other gods named Asherah. Well, according to the Bible, they had an Asherah pole in the temple. So he took it down uh, and he burned it. He beat it to the dust and, and scattered its dust all over the ground. He tore down the cubicles of the male prostitutes in the house of the Lord. Keep in mind that Canaanite religion is fertility religion. So was a lot of Greek religion, for that matter. So was a lot of, a lot of religion, right? Even we could argue, we could argue, as I did earlier, that um, this promise to Abraham was what? I will make your name great, and I will make your descendants great. What kind of promise is that? It's a fertility promise, and you signify that by making a mark on the thing that brings about fertility on men, called circumcision, right? So in a way, that was kind of a fertility. So a lot of these cults, the way that you worshipped the ancient god, the, the god, the fertility god, was you acted out what you wanted to have happen, right? So um, we know in Greek tradition, if you had a, a bad foot and you, wanted, you had a broken foot, and you, wanted, you would make a little a mold of your foot. And then you would go to the, 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 the shrine and you'd put the thing there. And basically you're saying, see God, see this is what I want you to fix. And then you'd go home and he would heal your foot. Right? Same is true for fertility religions. If you want children or if you want fertile crops, you need to act out the process of fertility. This, this is not unique to Kent. This is very common in lots of religions. So you, so you would have sex with the temple priest or the temple prostitute or whatever you want to call them. Um, the, and then, look, God, see, I'm doing this. This is what I want to happen to my crops. So this is what I want to happen. I want a lot of children type thing. So apparently there were prostitutes in the temple. Got rid of them. He defiled the shrines where the priest had been making offerings. Um, he demolished the shrines of the gates. He defiled the topheth tore down the altars made by the king of Judah, the altars made by Manasseh. He defiled the shrines facing Jerusalem, the altar at Bethel, remember that? The shrine made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He tore it all down. He burned down the shrine, beat it to the dust. He burned the sacred post. So what we have in, in 2 Kings 23 is basically the same kind of religious reform except to a larger narrative extent. It's the same kind of thing. 
Although one scholar has argued um, that what the, the difference between what Josiah was doing and what Hezekiah was doing is Hezekiah acknowledged that the shrines he was destroying were to the Hebrew God, were to the worship of Yahweh. Okay? And his focus was, okay, they might be shrines, those other totems and those other high places might be shrines to the Hebrew God, but um, we're going to knock them down because it's all about worshiping God in one place, the temple in Jerusalem. Whereas Josiah, you see these other shrines affiliated with other gods. So the scholar argues that in the Josianic religious reforms, you have the same activities taking place, but they're attributed to other gods. And that might be because you've had a hundred years of this tradition of you can only wor worship the Hebrew God in Jerusalem. So therefore, any kind of other shrine or totem or, or religious place has to be the worship of another God because God can only be worshipped in Jerusalem. See it? See the, he's doing the same things, but he understands shrines and, and idols as a worship of other gods, not the worship of the Hebrew God somewhere else. It's a small difference, but it might be something that explains it. Um, what else do we do? Josiah's reform, one of the ways that you bring all the people in order is you give them one way of doing religion, right? Now, this goes on today, right? We criticize it a lot, right? Somebody who says you must interpret this holy book this specific way, and if you don't, I will cut your head off, right? We criticize this today, right? But this is what was going on here. Josiah says you only worship one God, and you only do it in one way, and you only do it in one place. So he's basically, or he or his advisors, are consolidating control around Jerusalem, not around him as the king, but around the law, this law. Remember the law that they discovered? Okay? So they find this book of the law. Then you see uh, commands to read and obey it. A public recitation of the law every year, right? Sometimes more frequently. And then you have to do what it says. Okay? So again, we see this transition of following a, a charismatic leader to uh, following rule, a rule book, right? The laws. You can only worship in Jerusalem, and now you can only worship the Hebrew God. No foreign gods. So, for instance, this may have been the time that the temple in Arad, which was a shrine, right, in, in Judah, was probably destroyed. Was it destroyed under Hezekiah's reform? We think, maybe it was Josiah, we think Hezekiah. The idea was, we're completely centralizing the religion to Jerusalem, which also brings about the, uh, uh, an increase in the reputation of Jerusalem. So maybe it was the building of the temple, maybe it was the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, maybe it was the fact that Hezekiah survived the Assyrian onslaught, and maybe Jerusalem's reputation as an inviolable city was because of Hezekiah's and Josiah's religious reforms. Maybe that's one of those additional things that adds to the reputation of Jerusalem. I mentioned repeatedly uh, evidence of a religion of a book, not based upon a person, not even based upon a priest, although the priest could go a long way towards interpreting the book, right? Um, but this, this context for literacy. And one of the things we'll notice is we begin to see during this time period a lot of ostracon, a lot of um, text being written that aren't official texts. 
we would expect there to be annals. Is this not written in the annals of King so-and-so or in the book of Yashar? Is this not written in the chronicles? Of we get that. We expect that from a royal uh, 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 scribal community that serves the king. But what we begin to see is these less official texts popping up all over the place. Um, let me just give you an, an example here. Um, you have this letter called the, uh, the Lakish letter, Lakish letter, or the letter of a literate soldier. Okay? This is Lakish letter 3, about 587 BC. You can see the writing on it here, the old script. Remember, you read Semitic language right to left. Okay? And let me, just, let me just translate this for you, because it's significant, right? Um, uh, blah, 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 may, may he does his, you know, may the Lord cause uh, to hear a report of good things. And now please listen to your servant concerning this letter, which you sent to your servant yesterday evening. The heart of your servant, he's referring to himself in the third person, because when you talk to, you, know, you refer to yourself in the third person. The heart of your servant has been sick since your writing to your servant. As for what your, uh, my Lord said, did you not understand? Then call a scribe. Right? He says, do you not understand my letter? Go get a scribe. And he's writing in response to say, as the Lord lives, never has any man had to call a scribe for me. Right? And also any scribe who might have come to me, truly I never called him, nor would I give him anything. What's he arguing? I don't need a scribe. I know how to read. I know how to write. And this is a soldier in the army. But the significance of this letter is to demonstrate that there had already began, by this time period, a stigma about not being able to read and write. Keep in mind, they didn't necessarily live in an illiterate society where nobody knew how to read and write. They had lived in an a-literate or a-literate society. Writing wasn't that big of a deal. The kings wrote, but everything else was done orally. But by the time we get down to this period, now all of a sudden, it's beginning to be a literate society. There is, there is obviously an expectation that you should learn how to read and write. And if you couldn't read and write, the soldier says, oh, no, 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 I know how to write. Why would I need to call a scribe? Right? As the Lord lives. Now, keep in mind there are plenty of spelling mistakes and grammatical mistakes in this. When you read it, it's like, well, that's not really proper. So he could write, but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't good to scribe. But the fact that you have a letter that's basically arguing, hey, I know how to write, shows that there was this expectation that people were beginning to, to know how to read and write, which, which is consistent with this notion that there's a transition of the cult of Yahweh, the cult of the Hebrew God, right, from whatever the priest tells you or whatever the king dictates to an orthodoxy based upon the letter of the law, which, if you've studied Judaism at all, it's all about the law. It's all about the text and the tradition. Now, there's going to be a split over oral tradition versus written tradition, or, or you know. But the idea is that it's a text of the book. Christianity is a text of the book. Islam is a text of the book. But it all began right here, where the text assumes the authority that the priest or the king once had. We'll leave it here. We'll pick it up next week. Thanks so much. Remember, papers due Tuesday, beginning of class.